Take your Bibles this morning and let's open to Hebrews chapter 1. Make a brief review leading up to chapter 9. And then I'd like David Johnson to lead us in prayer before we begin the ninth chapter this morning and take up where we left off last Sunday. Hebrews chapter 1. I don't believe you can remind yourself and I can remind you too much of the importance of considering the reason for the writing of Hebrews as you read through and study this book. The Hebrews were born again, converted Israelites. They had worshipped in God's religion all of their lives. They were not pagan Gentiles as we once were. They were the true worshipers of God. Jesus said in John chapter 4, salvation is of the Jews. Practical salvation, the message of the gospel, the oracles of God, the scriptures, the worship of God, the giving of the covenant, the promises, was all Jewish. They had the religion of God. Then along came a man named Jesus Christ, who was preached to them that he rose from the dead, and they believed that message of the apostles, because that message was confirmed by signs and wonders, and they believed that it was indeed the truth that the man Jesus of Nazareth was the prophesied Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and that he ought to be followed. As they began to follow him, they lost their privileges in the temple. They were thrown out of the temple and out of the synagogue by the Jews and were forbidden to worship God according to the Jews' religion, which they knew to be God's religion. Can you imagine that dilemma in their minds? That glorious temple that Zerubbabel had begun and that Herod had finished. The ritual of the Levitical priesthood, the high priest, the day of atonement, the Passover. They still observed all the ceremonies with great zeal, very zealous of the law, the New Testament tells us, even after their conversion, because they knew it was the religion of God. But to follow that lowly man of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, they lost their privileges in that temple. They lost status in this world. They were associated with a persecuted band of heretics called that way. You know, that way. That way that follows Jesus Christ. Guess what the Greenville Church is being called this morning in a lot of places? That way. Well, thanks be to God. Paul once stood in court and said, and the way that they call heresy, so worship I the God of our fathers. But the Hebrews stood there in time, and it was a dangerous period of time because it was called the time of reformation. This was the first and only truly scriptural reformation. It occurred from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. when Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, and the apostles preached a changing of religion. That is, a changing from old covenant worship to new covenant worship for 40 years. That was the period in which Old Testament worship continued alongside New Testament worship. And the Jews are standing in the middle of this, wondering if they've made the right decision to follow Jesus Christ. Realizing that it was the Levitical priesthood that had made, quote, peace, unquote, with God in the past for them. 
that it was the Old Testament Scriptures that the Jews had. Remember, there were no New Testament Scriptures yet until toward the end of that 40-year period. So here they are, caught in a dilemma. The Apostle Paul writes an anonymous book because if they'd have known that Paul wrote it, they wouldn't have read it because Paul was a traitor to the Jews' religion. He went and preached to the Gentiles and taught them they didn't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So Paul writes an anonymous book bringing forth all of his learning in the Jews' religion. There was never a man more qualified than the Apostle Paul to know the Jews' religion. And in this book, we have all the logical, scriptural arguments against Old Testament religion. That it is now being done away with, and Jesus Christ is our high priest. He replaces the Levitical priesthood. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. We have a whole new form of worship. Chapter 1, the logical argument was, Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets in verses 1 through 3. In the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Now the Jews knew they had received their first form of religion by the hands of angels on Mount Sinai. And therefore, Jesus Christ is being presented as being superior to those angels. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul compares Jesus to Moses in the first six verses and shows the superiority of Christ. In the rest of those verses, he warns Israel against not entering into God's rest and falling under the same judgment that the Israelites in the wilderness fell under. In chapter 4, he points out that because David said there was another rest, therefore there was a rest after Canaan, and he proves that that rest is in Jesus Christ. And unless they're careful, they'll miss the blessings of God just as did that generation in the wilderness. The last part of chapter 4 introduces the priesthood of Christ. Paul builds slowly. He deals with the prophets. He deals with angels. He deals with Moses. He deals with the rest of God. Then in chapter 4, in the first part of chapter 5, he introduces the fact that Jesus Christ is a priest. Now, he does not set aside the tribe of Levi yet. In chapter 6, he makes that terrible warning that if these Jews did not take heed to the gospel they had heard and continued in it, God would irremediably judge them and swear against them, and they would lose their gospel privileges. In chapter 7, we have a detailed setting down of the Levitical priesthood and a setting up of Jesus Christ. There is a new priesthood, chapter 7. In chapter 8, Paul says the whole old covenant has been put away, and we have a new covenant now by which we worship God. And then in chapter 9, Paul begins dealing with the ordinances of that old covenant compared to the ordinances of worship in heaven. And I want to point out something, and then I want David to pray this morning before we begin. In Hebrews chapter 9, we have the first reference to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and to His blood. The word blood has not been used yet in the book of Hebrews. Blood was a very important part of the Old Testament religion under Moses' law. Animals were slain every day and their blood was shed. Paul feels he has built his argument sufficiently to this point that he can now introduce Jesus Christ as the great blood shedder for the remission of sins. And that is what we will study 
this morning as we try to cover Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is broken into two sections. The first section runs through verse 10, which describes the ordinances of the Old Testament compared to the ordinances of heaven, not the ordinances of the New Testament, as far as we know them in the New Testament church, but the ordinances of heaven itself. Verses 11 through 28 describe the fact that Jesus Christ is a great mediator of this new covenant, and by his sacrifice and by his blood, he has forever put away sin. Let me briefly remind you what we covered last Sunday morning. Very important and also very helpful in understanding the book of Hebrews. Remember, I passed out to you a diagram of the Old Testament tabernacle in which you could see the three compartments, the outer courtyard in which anyone could enter, the sanctuary or that little room 30 by 15 in which was the candlestick, the table with showbread, and the altar of incense. And then there was that small room, 15 by 15, that contained the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim over it. And in the Ark of the Covenant were three items that Paul mentions here. And there was also a golden censer in that room that you don't read about in the Old Testament, but Paul tells us about it. The only time you read about it in the Old Testament is when the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies. What day of the year did he go in? Day of Atonement. Tenth day of the seventh month. He went in to make atonement for the people of Israel. He first went in with his swinging little pot, golden pot of incense, in order to fill that room with smoke, because God dwells in a darkness to which no man can approach. And that was to set that room aside for the worship of God. Then he went black back in with the blood of a bullock, which he offered for himself and his own sins, the sins of all the priests. Then he went back and killed a goat and took its blood in and sprinkled it on that mercy seat for the sins of the people. Then the blood of both were sprinkled on everything, the tabernacle, the vessels, the candlestick, everywhere, to sanctify the meeting place. And then the sins of the people were put on the heads of the scapegoat, the, the second of the two goats, and it was taken by a fit man into the wilderness and let loose to typify the sins being imputed to another and taken away, which Jesus Christ did for us. Now Paul describes all of these items in Hebrews chapter 9, the first 10 verses, and he describes some of those rituals. And he tells us in verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying. Now what he has just described is the fact that no one could go into the Holy of Holies but once a year, and then only the high priest with blood. The only time they could get into the Holy of Holies. The whole nation of Israel stood around outside that tabernacle wall, which was seven and a half feet tall, couldn't see in, couldn't see the priest, didn't know what was happening, simply believed God that God would have mercy on that priest entering a place that you did not enter any other day of the year. And the incense would curl out from underneath through the roof of that small room, and you'd realize that that high priest was making atonement for you. And until he appeared at the gate of the tabernacle or the door of the tabernacle, with the scapegoat to be sent into the wilderness, you weren't sure what had happened. You were hoping it was just like last year and that God accepted the offering because some men tried to enter that room, some men tried to offer sacrifices, some men tried to offer incense that God burned on the spot. And we read about them in Scripture also. But he tells us all of that signifies this according to verse 8. 
The Holy Ghost, this signifying. Remember, whenever you read the word signify, it means that God has given signs that mean something. And I'm not one to preach signs unless God preaches them in His Word. Because once you start preaching signs, as I'm going to point out in just a minute, you end up on a course without a map or a compass, and you end up in fairyland. You go to some church and hear some man take the tabernacle, and he's got something for every pin, pillar, hoof, tail that's involved in the whole process. It's dreamland, brethren. It's dreamland. How do you prove anything like that? Now, Paul details the tabernacle right here. He mentions its individual pieces of furniture. If ever Paul had the opportunity to engage in a course of type and shadow preaching, it was right here. Nowhere else in the Bible is the opportunity provided like right here. And notice what he says in verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. What did a closed compartment called the most holy place that a priest could only enter once a year with blood mean? What did that mean? The presence of God was not yet open while the first testament was still standing. While as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing. Verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present. That tabernacle was simply a figure of worship. It had no real worship involved. The blood of animals, brethren, does not mean anything to God, and it never did mean anything to God of a legal, sanctifying nature before Him. It's not the book of life of the animals slain. It's the book of life of the lamb slain. It was simply a figure. For the time then present, that is the first covenant under Moses, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience. When you went to church, and it is called the church in the wilderness, when you went to church in the Old Testament, you took your sacrifice, blood was shed, and did that help your conscience? Did you feel better about your sins when you left the worship service that morning? No. It says it could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. His conscience, his internal conviction, the mind inside that makes moral judgment realized, I'm still under my sins. I'm still guilty. I'm still condemned before God. You say, well, why in the world do they even have such a form of religion? Who'd want to go to church just to feel worse? Verse 10 will tell you why. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them. They didn't ask for it. What man would sit around and dream up Old Testament worship? Blood spraying everywhere all day, burning it. Do you know what that place would smell like? Form, ritual, so complicated you know you could never keep it. What man would ever dream that up? God made that form of worship and he imposed it on the Israelites. He imposed it for two reasons. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 tells us that he imposed the old covenant on men that all the world might become guilty before God. The law of God was given to make all men guilty. That's why it's so complicated, complex, and broad, as David said. David said in Psalm 119, Thy commandment is exceeding broad. And when you look at the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, only if you're a Pharisee do you think it's narrow. 
Now the Pharisee thought all that meant is you don't stick a knife between somebody's seventh and eighth rib and take their life. Their life. Jesus said, if you harbor anger in your heart without a cause, you're guilty of the sixth commandment. Thy commandment is exceeding broad. And for any man who understood the commandments, guess what that left him? Condemned. God imposed that system of religion to make all men sinners, to shut their mouths and to make all the world guilty before God. The other reason he imposed it is according to Galatians 3.19. That should be easy to remember. Romans 3.19, Galatians 3.19. Galatians 3.19 that it was imposed because of transgressions. Men were running wild. They needed some more strict guidelines as to how to live. And so God imposed a strict, detailed moral code on that nation because of transgressions. Those are the two predominant reasons God imposed it on them. How long was that system of religion imposed? Until the time of Reformation. Hebrews 9.10. Brethren, don't ever forget it. There are, in this world, supposedly, three classes of religions accepted by the Western world. How many times have you ever filled out a... Well, you can't do that anymore, can you? can't ever ask a man his religion anymore when you fill out an employment application. Do you remember ever filling out one where you had to check either Jew, Catholic, or Protestant? Ever see those three distinctions before? Guess where we fall? into a fourth category. The disciples of Jesus Christ, and if someone asked you, does your church believe that it came from the Reformation? What will you say? Say no and yes. No, not from the Reformation you're talking about, because that was simply a reforming of the Catholic Church. And we did not come from the Roman Catholic Church, and nor do we look anything like those Reformed daughters that came from the Catholic Church and say, yes, because we came from this Reformation. We're a fourth category. You know, it's that way. Yes, there's Jews, there's Catholics, there's Protestants, and there's that way, the weirdos. You know, the Baptists of this world. Well, the Bible doesn't say weirdo. The Bible says this, First Peter chapter 4. They'll call you strange. First Peter chapter 4. Yes, and we've been called that before. This is the most exciting reformation that ever took place in this world right here. Not what Martin Luther did. Listen, what changes? They're going from transubstantiation to consubstantiation. Why, the Catholic says that when the priest says, this is my body, the cracker actually turns to God. Martin Luther says when the priest says, this is my body, God calls, crawls into the cracker so that you still have both. That's what it means. Now, how big of a reformation was that? consubstantiation with the substance of the bread, transubstantiation, the transformation of the substance. They call that a reformation. I want to tell you about a reformation. Jesus Christ one day stood with a woman of Samaria, and he said, Neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem shall they worship the Father. God seeketh such to worship him that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ there was prophesying of a great transformation, a reformation, to take place in the worship of God. It was no longer going to be a fleshly, bodily, physical, outward, carnal 
form of worship, you say you shouldn't use the word carnal relative to the worship of God. Did you miss verse 10? Paul called them carnal ordinances because everything under the Old Testament never dealt with your soul. It was bodily. It was physical. I call it sensual in that it was picked up by your five senses. You could taste it, smell it, touch it, see it, and hear it. The New Testament, it deals with your spirit. It is a spiritual form of worship, and God seeks such to worship Him. And Jesus Christ introduced that great reformation. Look at Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. I think half of you could quote it if I started you, but look at it anyway. Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. John the Baptist was an important figure in this world. When he burst on the scene, things were changing. And they talk about 1517, I believe, is the date when Martin Luther tacked his 95 theses on the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany, as some great momentous event in the history of religion. Listen, our ancestors had been worshiping for 1,500 years when Martin Luther did that. In the catacombs of Rome, and in the valleys of Piedmont in northern Italy, and in the in Wales and the British Isles. Luke 16, 16. Here's a man that popped on the scene. Jesus Christ said the law and the prophets were until John. See, the carnal ordinances were imposed until the time of Reformation. And what started the Reformation? A man named John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Jesus Christ has built a kingdom through the ministry of John the Baptist, himself, and his apostles. Nor do we buy the argument of the premillennialists that are still looking for a kingdom in this world. Jesus said there was a kingdom in his day. Now the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Jesus Christ is king now, and brethren, he's been king for 1958 years since the day he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He is king. And all those premillennialists, guess what? They'd say amen if I said king of kings and lord of lords, but they don't believe it if you ever applied their theology. Jesus Christ won't be king until he comes back down to earth and sits on some physical throne in physical Israel and institutes physical worship once again. That is a crock. That stinks. Jesus Christ is king now, and he's king of a spiritual form of worship imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Listen, the millennium isn't going to be a time of Reformation. The Reformation is 2,000 years old. And didn't the Lord end it well in 70 A.D.? Because the Jews hadn't got the message from the preaching, God simply had Titus, who became Caesar, take a plow and drag it across the top of Mount Zion, where once the city of Jerusalem stood. Jesus said he'll take this place apart stone by stone. Jesus said the enemy will encompass this city round about and level it with the ground. How many Passover lambs do you think were offered after that in Jerusalem? How many days of atonement did they have after that? They haven't had a holy of holies since that day, and they never will, because that was simply a figure of the true, and the true holy of holies has always stood since eternity and that is the presence of God in heaven above. Amen. Jesus Christ reformed religion for us. That's the reformation we come from.
Keep that verse in your minds. The devil is always a counterfeiter. Always a counterfeiter. Remember, Paul said, he warned of the, he warned of Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I fear lest by any means you'll be deceived from the simplicity of Christ through another gospel, another Jesus, and another spirit. The devil has never deceived Christians with the Quran or the, or Vishnu of the Hindus or the Book of Mormon. Listen, anyone who is dumb enough to read and believe the Book of Mormon are not the saints of God. The true enemies of the Church of Jesus Christ is not the Mormon Church. It's those that come preaching another Jesus similar to what the Church of Jesus Christ preaches. That's the danger. That's where deception enters in. Jesus, another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. And so the devil had another reformation. And how many people in this world look to the fact of the reformation in 1500s and the 1600s as the beginning or the revival or the restoration of the church of Jesus Christ? We look back to another reformation, to a reformed church. Now let's take up with verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. The first point I'll make is from the first two verses here, verses 11 and 12. But Paul's been talking about Old Testament worship with Old Testament priests and ordinances. And now he says in verse 11, but Christ being come and high priest. Where did he prove to us that Jesus Christ is come a great high priest? Chapter 7. In detail, in chapter 7, he's already established that Jesus Christ is priest. Now he's going to tie it back in. But Christ, being come in high priest, of good things to come. Now, good things to come is in the infinitive form of that verb, come. But, which gives it the sense of future, future tense. But the good things to come are simply referring to those good things the Old Testament prophesied of that now Jesus Christ is ministering. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. Well, when did the good things come? When the shadow disappeared. When did the shadow disappear? The time of Reformation, when Jesus Christ came. The good things to come. Brethren, we're not looking forward to good things other than the actual realization of heaven ourselves. The good things are here. That is the New Testament form of worship and understanding of the everlasting covenant. But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Remember the first ten verses Paul's been reviewing with these Israelites what it was like to worship God under the first tabernacle. And now he says Jesus Christ is the priest of better things, of good things, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is the presence of God itself in heaven. He goes on to say, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. The building the Jews had there in the temple at Jerusalem was a focal point of their religion. And Paul said, Jesus Christ is a priest of good things to come, and it doesn't have to do with this building. And what do the premillennialists want to do? What is their great aim? The rebuilding of this building by hands. 
the rebuilding of a building in Jerusalem with hands. When the Bible says that Jesus Christ is come and high priest of good things to come and it's a building without hands, it's a tabernacle in heaven, the very presence of God himself. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. When it says the blood of goats and calves, do any of you know what that's referring to? You should remember. The day of atonement, when the high priest went into the holy place. It was the only time they truly went into the presence of God. I mean, when you went in and lit the candlestick in the sanctuary, or what was called the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place, that wasn't the presence of God. God was behind that veil. You never saw him. He was behind the veil. You couldn't even see where he dwelled between the two cherubim. But once a year, the priest could get into the presence of God with the blood first of a bullock and then of the goat. The bullock for his own sins, the blood of the goat for the sins of the people. Now it says here, neither by the blood of goats and calves. What is a bullock? A bull calf. That's what a bullock is. A bull calf. And so it was by the blood of a calf and by the blood of a goat, the high priest would enter into the presence of God once a year. Jesus Christ didn't do it that way. Imagine you've got to pretend with me to a point that you're a Hebrew this morning. You have focused on that day of atonement for all of your life. You might be 30, you might be 70. And if you're 70, 70 times you have witnessed the day in which the high priest took the blood of a bullock and of a, cat, a goat into the holy place to meet God and make atonement for you. That has been the purest form of religion in this world. And now the apostle is setting aside that blood. Now, he hasn't done this yet. This is chapter 9. He hasn't dared go right after the Day of Atonement. This is the national, national Day of Atonement for the whole nation. Now he's going to set it aside. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once <coughs> into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He took his own blood in. Do you want a priest that takes in the blood of animals or do you want a priest that goes in with his own blood? You know, in the typical religious situation where you've got a priest and an offering, the offering and the priest are two different things. And you've got to worry about two different things. Hopefully the offering's acceptable to God. And second of all, I hope the priest is acceptable also. You save yourself a whole lot of worry and you can certainly build a lot of confidence when it's the one and the same thing. Jesus Christ shed his own blood. Do you think Jesus Christ has a vested interest in interceding on your behalf before the throne of God since it's his own blood? Powerful, powerful. He entered by his own blood once into the holy place. Now remember, the Old Testament priests had to do it every tenth day of the seventh month, once a year. I call it an annual. You know, sometimes airplanes are to get annuals on their engines. That's an overhaul of their engine. You're to get annuals. Well, you got an annual day of atonement in Israel. You say you're speaking lightly of it. You bet I am. Paul called it beggarly and carnal, weak and pitiful. 
They got an annual. I mean, every year you went back and you had this Day of Atonement when you walked away. Guess what? Did you feel better or worse than when you arrived? Worse. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. Why, if the Old Testament did anything to make you feel better, they wouldn't have had to offer it the next year, because your sins would have been forgiven. But in fact, it made a... Verse 3 tells us of Hebrews chapter 10, in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. That day of atonement was a day to remember sins, but this verse, verse 13, verse 12, I mean, tells us that Jesus entered once into the holy place with His own blood. He only did it one time, and we read about that this morning in Revelation chapter 5. He entered one time to offer His blood because His blood was not the blood of a bullock or of a goat. It was His own blood. It was the infinite blood of the Holy Son of God. And He only had to offer it once. And when He offered it once, God accepted it. And the, and the verse tells us here, He obtained eternal redemption for us. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered and shed His blood, and He was the great high priest, and he entered into the presence of God, and he offered his blood to God, and God accepted his blood, and the Scriptures tell us that that obtained eternal redemption for us, would you tell me how many human sinners will be in hell that Jesus Christ shed his blood for? None. The thought is blasphemy. The Word of God says He obtained eternal redemption for us. Oh, how many wish it said, and He made eternal redemption possible. Or He created the potential of eternal redemption if you would cooperate with Him. He obtained it. I've loved that verse ever since I came to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus Christ accomplished something. The rest of this city this morning, brethren, is teaching this doctrine that those in hell have every right to sing the new song of Revelation 5.9 as those in heaven. Because Jesus Christ was slain and redeemed them in hell as much as He was slain and redeemed them in heaven. And there is no escaping that logic. Because it doesn't take any more logic than 2 plus 2 equals 4. If Jesus Christ shed His blood for all the sins of all men, then those in hell have as much right to sing that song as those in heaven. And if that's true, the song doesn't mean anything. Because that makes the Savior the man Himself. Because if God, through Jesus Christ, did everything equally for both groups of men, then what is the determining difference? And who should get the praise in heaven? Man Himself. I want to present this morning a Savior and a priest that entered in once and so completely accomplished eternal redemption that it can be described as having obtained it for us. It was done. That's why it says He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because redemption had been secured for His people. Verses 13 and 14. Now, verses 13 and 14 deal with the conscience. 
For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, brethren, if you got leprosy or you got something that looked like leprosy, you would go to the high priest and he would have taken a red heifer. You say, why was it a red one? Ask God when you get to heaven. It was a red heifer. They burned the whole thing in a fire. I mean everything in the fire. Took the ashes of that fire, put it in a jar someplace, and if you were unclean and you needed to be cleansed in order to go back into the sanctuary, back into the tabernacle to worship, to be able to offer a sacrifice to God, they would take a branch of hyssop, put some water in a, in a bowl with some of those ashes, stir it up, and sprinkle that mess on you. And that would sanctify your flesh. Now, how much good did it do legally before God in heaven? Not a thing. But it did purify your flesh. Look at the rest of the verse. And I want you to get that great big if in verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. It did. If it did that, he's going to draw a conclusion that's powerful in verse 14. But let me first of all explain what it means to purify the flesh. I have ridiculed Old Testament sacrifices as having no worth before God of a lasting, eternal, spiritual, saving nature. They had none before God. But they did purify your flesh. Remember, if you were ceremonial un ceremonially unclean, could you come and offer a sacrifice to God? No. You, you were cut out of worship. You couldn't even go to church. Couldn't even stand around that tabernacle. Couldn't participate in the Passover if you were ceremonial un ceremonially unclean. And if you didn't get yourself clean, guess what happened? God would judge you. You'd be cut off, killed. So in the animal sacrifices and in the sprinkling of ashes, there was a purifying of the flesh. Your body, your outward body was purified in the sense that you were now acceptable before God for outward external worship. You were now once again included in the privileges and blessings of the old covenant. As long as you were ceremonially unclean, you were not. You were cut off. You were an outcast. You had to stay apart from everyone else. But offering those sacrifices did make you clean before God in an outward sense so that you could come back to the tabernacle, you could go in, offer an animal sacrifice, and be under the blessings of God, be present for the preaching of the Scriptures. The Apostle's argument is this. If you people went through all those motions and offered all those sacrifices in order simply to make your outward body acceptable to God, how much more, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you served God, and listen, brethren, it's a pity, but they served God more diligently than we. If you served God simply to have the blood of goats and calves and the ashes of an heifer applied to your account, to make you outwardly clean with God, how much more should you be dedicated to His service if the blood of Christ was shed for you? It's a comparison here. Remember, these Hebrews are standing between the two forms of religion with which do I stay? 
They've made a profession of following Jesus Christ, and Paul's whole message in the whole book is hold fast your profession. And he's arguing now, if you want to hold fast that system of religion simply to be made clean outwardly, how much more? How much more should you be zealous in the service of God since the blood of Christ was offered for you? Let's notice a couple things in verse 14. There are a lot of churches, a lot of ministers, a lot of evangelists this morning that will be offering the blood of Christ to sinners and asking sinners that if they want to be saved and realize the benefits of the new covenant, then they must accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and accept His blood as the atonement for their sins. <clears throat> Nowhere in the Word of God did Jesus Christ ever violate and corrupt His blood by offering it to men. This verse tells us plainly that Jesus Christ offered His blood through the... <clears throat> through the eternal Spirit, to God. How does a priest make an atonement for sin by going to the sinner? Whether a man has accepted Jesus Christ or not is irrelevant to eternal redemption. What is important if a man has eternal life and will be saved to be with Christ in glory is whether God has accepted him. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, brethren, I glory in the truth of the true gospel. All my life, I was taught, trained to teach that men have to accept Christ in order to be saved. Brethren, the Word of God teaches God must accept us in Christ in order for men to be saved. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, I want to read through verse 6. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings are in Christ, and God has blessed us with all those spiritual blessings in Christ. Whatever blessing you want to think about, if it's a spiritual blessing, it's in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, how do we get those blessings? According as He, that is God, hath chosen us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Who is the Beloved? Jesus Christ. God said, This is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, he predestinates us to be His children in Jesus Christ His Son. It is all according to the good pleasure of His will, not the will of sinners, but His will. If God left us alone, our will would constantly run away from God, hate God, and crucify the Savior. And then He makes us accepted in the Beloved. 
That's a passive voice verb, brother, and that means someone else is accepting you. It, it doesn't say he makes you accepting of God. It says that he made you accepted in the beloved by God. And when did that occur? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he came before God and he shed his blood and he offered it through the eternal spirit to God as the blood of the covenant. From before the foundation of the world, God had written his covenant. Jesus Christ will die. I have elected certain beneficiaries. The, benefit, the benefits of this covenant are spiritual life and eternal glory with me. Jesus Christ entered the throne room of God, offered his blood to the Almighty that sat on that throne, and it was accepted. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 tells us that Jesus Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. He was a lamb without blemish that gave his life for us. Comparable to the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were to be chosen of animals that had no blemishes. So Jesus Christ offered himself without spot through the eternal spirit to God and should not that offering purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If an Israelite could be so dedicated to the Old Testament that never purged his conscience, he never felt like his sins were forgiven. If he could be dedicated to a form of religion like that, once you hear about Jesus Christ, who without spot, through the eternal spirit, offered himself in the very presence of God once for all, shouldn't that motivate you? And purge your conscience from dead works. What are those dead works? The works of the old covenant. What is Paul's whole argument here? The old covenant is gone. It never had any saving effect. Let it go. Turn to Christ. And should not that motivate you to dedicated service? Is the point of verse 14. Because it is the blood of Christ, a man can look at the blood of Christ, he can hear the arguments about Christ's priesthood, chapter 7, and he can believe that his sins have been purged because the apostle just said in verse 12 that he obtained eternal redemption for us. And if there's eternal redemption in Christ, is he not the object? Or should he not be the object of much more diligent service than any comparison of the Old Testament, which never purged the conscience, but simply imposed dead works over and over and over. Works that were dead. They had no life or no saving effect to them. Verse 15. And by the offering of his blood, because that's the context of verses 13 and 14, and for this cause, that is the cause of the shedding of blood, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. When did God promise eternal life? Before the world began, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. God made the promise. What was the means by which the promise is put into force? It tells you. You know, you can go to seminary and take a whole semester in the doctrine of salvation and learn all about the means of salvation. Why some preach sacramental means. It's through the seven sacraments of Rome. Others will teach two sacraments of the Church of the Lutherans. Others will teach gospel means. The gospel's got to be preached to you and you've got to believe it. 
That puts the new covenant into force. Right here we have laid out for us the plain word of God that by means of death they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Notice that it says for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. If you were a Jew, what would be, what would be laying on your soul as heavy as lead? The fact that all those orders, laws, commandments, and ordinances of the Old Testament were condemning you. You had not lived up to them. You had violated them. And therefore, you had that covenant that said, The soul that sinneth it shall die, laying on your back. And what did Jesus Christ do? He redeemed men from the transgressions that were under the first covenant. Men lived for 2,000 years under that first covenant, but the Bible tells us through the forbearance of God, according to Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, through the forbearance of God, God looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ that would pay for all their transgressions under that first covenant. They never had any relief under the first covenant. But when Jesus Christ was preached, then they heard the message that all those transgressions, all those commandments we've broken under that complicated form of religion have been paid for by Jesus Christ. Oh, this, this is so precious. In verse 15, brethren, and for this cause. What cause is in verse... What cause is Paul talking about in the first part of verse 15? The offering of his blood to God through the eternal spirit. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Now, the word testament has only occurred once in the book of Hebrews to this point. In the next six verses, it occurs six times. Because the emphasis of Paul is going to change slightly from a covenant to a testament. They're very similar to each other. But a testament speaks more directly to what we understand it to mean. And that is the last will and testament of Almighty God through Jesus Christ. God wrote an everlasting covenant before the world began. The Bible tells us the book of life had its names completed in it before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8. The beneficiaries are all there. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us that Jesus Christ was foreordained to die before the foundation of the world. The condition for the covenant was there. The promise of eternal life was given before the foundation of the world. The condition, the benefit, and the beneficiaries all wrapped up in the covenant of God that He made before the foundation of the world. But when Jesus Christ rose up on high and offered his blood to Jesus Christ, it put that testament into force. This is the weightiest argument, one of the weightiest arguments in the word of God for the doctrine of salvation as we believe it. It put the New Testament into force. Paul goes on to reason in verses 16 and 17, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is no, of no strength at all while a testator liveth. For those of you fathers who have a will, assigning your property to your heirs, what good is that piece of paper while you're alive? All the kids can do is sit around and dream and hopefully not dream too long about it. It could lead to a temptation. 
Has that ever happened? Ever seen a will with a hefty insurance policy attached to it and observed someone committing murder for it? Because it's no good while the testator lives. Why, it's, it's a worthless piece of paper until he dies. If he outlives the heir, what happens to the will? No benefit is applied. No benefit is applied. Because the heir dies before he can receive the benefit, for the testator must die. We make up a will. We don't like sitting down and talking about wills, because we don't like to think about our own death. But it's necessary in order for a orderly distribution of our property after death. There was an eternal covenant. I've preached this so many times going in the last couple of weeks in Hebrews here. God the Father wrote the will. The beneficiaries were there. The benefits were listed and the condition for it. And it's called a testament. It's called a testament because the whole thing will go into force with the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood is the evidence that life has ceased. Death has occurred. And when Jesus Christ brought his blood before God, it was the sign that death had occurred by that great mediator of the New Testament, and it was now put into force. If the beneficiaries of the New Covenant were listed, if the benefits of the New Covenant were listed, and the condition was well stated, and Jesus Christ fulfilled that condition by dying, and according to this text, putting into force that New Testament, how many beneficiaries will not receive the benefits? How many benefits will the beneficiaries not receive? To even think that some benefits will be withheld, or to even think that some of the beneficiaries will not realize the benefits, is blasphemy. It is to mock and ridicule the testament of Almighty God. And to add some other means? What other means are you going to add to putting God's eternal testament into force? Tell me. The sacrament of baptism at birth, like the Roman Catholics would like to believe? Believing the message of the gospel, like others would like to believe? Well, what about poor infants that are beneficiaries of that covenant? What about other beneficiaries that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? They miss out on knowing how they're saved, but they do not miss out on the benefits of the covenant. Because when Jesus Christ died, He put it into force. And it's there, it's established, God wrote it, and He went into the presence of God and took that book out of His hand. And they sang a song, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain because He's redeemed us out of every nation. Now, has the gospel gone to every nation? Have the priests with their holy chrism gone to every nation to baptize babies? No. But will there be redeemed children of God in the presence of God out of every nation? It tells us that. How did they get there? By means of death. By means of death. That they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And what in the world is that call? What is that call? It's the call of God to eternal life. It's the call of God to eternal life. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Show you a couple of references on that point. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also 
called. That's 1 Timothy 6.12. Come back a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In the Bible, the word call is used for the word appointed. When a man is called to the ministry, that simply means he was appointed to the ministry. Jesus Christ was called to be a high priest. We also read he was appointed to be a high priest. Paul was called to be an apostle. He was also appointed to be an apostle. The word call means appointed. That's why when we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, we see the call of God. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God has made appointments for men. And those appointments are called predestination. And everyone that God has made an appointment for will keep the appointment because it was the death of Christ that guaranteed the appointment will be kept. And that is a call, an appointment to eternal life that God promised before the world began. Verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 9. We'll now run down through verse 23. Whereupon, that is, upon the fact that Jesus Christ died and shed His blood in heaven to obtain eternal redemption and the promise of eternal life, whereupon neither the First Testament was dedicated without blood. Let me say that again. Because blood is involved in heaven to obtain your eternal redemption, because of that fact, whereupon because of that fact, so the New Testament had lots of blood involved in it. Because remember, the New Testament had to be a figure the Old Testament, excuse me, had to be a figure of what was going to take place in heaven. Whereupon, neither the First Testament was dedicated without blood. What does the word dedicate mean there? Do you think you can pick it up from what we've already read? What does the word dedicate mean? Initiated, put into force. Put into force is what that word means right there. Because what... What is the thought that Paul has just ended with? The blood of Christ put into force, initiated, dedicated, brought into being, brought into actual effect, the new covenant. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. When God made his covenant with Israel on how they were to worship him and all the ordinances, all the laws and commandments, guess what? It was put into force by blood also. And he goes on to describe that fact in verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. And once that was done, what happened if you went and broke the testament? You died. Once Jesus Christ sprinkled his blood on the New Testament, what happens? Everyone lives that's a participant in that covenant because it's that sprinkling of blood in the formal ceremony of what puts the covenant into force. All the people stood and listened to Moses go on and on with all the commandments. And then they said, everything that God hath commanded, we will do. Didn't last long, but they started out well. And they said, everything God hath commanded, we will do. And then Moses sprinkled the people and said, God will bless you if you do and curse you if you do not. Verse 21, moreover, not only did he sprinkle the book and the people, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry on that day of atonement. Verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. There's a couple sacrifices in the Old Testament that don't involve blood. 
And guess who those sacrifices were made for or ordained for? Those that were too poor to pay for blood. To pay for blood, you had to have something living. And that sometimes took too much money. So you could bring grain. You could bring other offerings in which you did not have to offer blood. But most everything under the Old Testament was purged with blood. What kind of purging? Outward dedication, sanctification, setting apart for the worship of God. It had no legal or truly internally sanctifying effect at all. And without shedding of blood is no remission. <clears throat> you have to have blood. Why is blood so important in the religion of God? Because it indicates life. The Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 16, Jews were not to eat blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. When the blood disappears, what happens to the flesh? It dies. Blood is the key element to life in a physical body. That's why God required it from when he cut the skins to clothe Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until Jesus Christ went into the throne room of God and offered up his own blood. Blood indicates death. That's why the Bible says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Now that little clause there may give you a little bit of trouble, but it's not that difficult if you'll follow it slowly. Therefore necessary, because the new covenant was put into force with blood, therefore the old covenant was put into force with blood. Which of those two covenants is called the pattern of the other? The old covenant's the pattern. It was therefore necessary that the pattern, that is the old covenant, of things in heaven, that's simply modifying the pattern, the Old Covenant was a pattern of what? Of things in heaven. It was therefore necessary that the patterns, and I'm going to leave out that modifying prepositional phrase, it was therefore necessary that the patterns should be purified with these. With what? The sprinkling of blood he's already described. Because God's covenant was dedicated with blood in heaven, so the patterns of the Old Testament and all its ordinances were dedicated with these. What these? Scarlet wool, hyssop, sprinkling of blood on the book, on the people, on all the vessels of the sanctuary. That's what that text is referring to. Paul's just finishing up his argument from verses 18 through 23. That because there's blood in the new covenant, there had to be blood in the old covenant. Now, you Israelites, do you understand why there was so much blood under your covenant? It never put away sin. It was simply a pattern. Simply a pattern. Now, brethren, the argument's powerful. Do you want to worship God according to a pattern or the real thing? You're a Hebrew. You're being persecuted for the cause of Christ. They're railing on you. There's a man named Saul of Tarsus who a few years ago was hauling men into prison, both men and women. You're suffering for the cause of Christ. You're out of the religion of the Jews. And you find out that all that blood and all those sacrifices was nothing, nothing but a pitiful, a weak, a beggarly, carnal, sensual pattern of a transaction that took place in heaven that infinitely exceeds any imagination of a human-based, outward-based, physical religion. Powerful, weighty arguments presented by Paul to convince the Hebrews they ought not to go back to Judaism or Old Testament worship. 
verses 24 through 28. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. That temple, Hebrews, that tabernacle, Hebrews, that holy of holies, is nothing but a figure of the true. And Jesus Christ went into the true. And it was not made with hands. Though the Jews knew how their temple was made with hands. In fact, they knew how long it took the hands to make it. In John chapter 2 and verse 20, they told Jesus, Forty and six years were our fathers in building this temple. They knew it was built by hands. And here Paul is presenting a temple not made with hands into which Jesus Christ entered. It is the true fulfillment of the figure of the tabernacle. What does the figure, what does the tabernacle represent? Second half of verse 24. Into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That little 150 feet long by 50 feet wide area called the tabernacle with the sanctuary and the most holy place was a figure of heaven itself. and the very presence of God. And that is where Jesus Christ is now appearing. He's now appearing there for us. Look at two references I've pointed out before. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. When you preach through Hebrews, you are continually exercised with the reminder from Paul that it is not simply the death of Christ to which we are to look all the time. The death of Christ is indeed most important because it was there where He shed His blood and gave His life in order to put this covenant into force. But after that event, when He rose up on high, He became a priest with a sanctuary and God was there where He intercedes for us. And this verse just reminded us of it again. He is now appearing in the presence of God for us. Does that mean anything to you this morning? Sometimes when we look at Calvary, which was 1,958 years ago, we lose sight of it. It's old. It's already happened. We've been over that point many times before. But what about what He's doing now? You know, we sing a song that talks about the fact that not only will we talk about the things He's done for us, but we'll also talk about the things He's doing for us now. I believe it's number 14, but don't check that one out. What is He doing for us now? And I like the way Paul emphasizes this fact. Death and then intercession is far more important than simply death. You need someone to take that blood and to present it to Almighty God and plead for its acceptance. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if, when we were baptized at the Roman font, we were reconciled to God by the death... Excuse me. Romans 5.10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son... Now, what does that do to human means in salvation? If reconciliation took place when Jesus Christ died, and this verse tells us that we were reconciled by the death of Christ while we were enemies, 
what means were you using? For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The point there is this. Jesus is now appearing in the presence of God for us. Yes, we're commanded to look back and remember His death till He come. But that death is so much more valuable by the fact that He is now appearing in heaven for us. We shall be saved much more by His life because the priest is there that shed his own blood reminding God continually of that covenant and that the benefits of that covenant must be secured to all of the beneficiaries. Look also at chapter 8. Paul doesn't make this point just once. The intercession of Christ as our priest now is an important theme. And it's the book of Hebrews. Because every man wants a priest. When you sin, when you sin and you're convicted for your sin, don't you wish you could make peace with God? You have that tremendous conviction that you wish you could make peace with God and cover that. And you've got it through the blood of Christ. But you are not the only one on your knees begging God for mercy through Jesus Christ. He is at the right hand of God making intercession for us now. Now. He's now appearing in the presence of God for us. Look at Romans 8, 34. Let's get verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one can. When Christ put the new covenant into force, all the elect were guaranteed of every spiritual blessing. It is God that justifieth. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? How can you condemn a beneficiary of the new covenant? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather. Christ not only died, yea, rather, he died and he rose again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Priests must be men. God cannot be a priest. Would you want God to be your priest? Infinitely holy and demanding? Every time you sin, He'd incinerate you. God cannot be a priest. He had to have a man be a priest. A man can commiserate with the sins of men, and a man could offer blood for, the, for human beings. There is a man in heaven. A man. The man Christ Jesus. Yes, He is divine in His divine nature. But there is a man in heaven at the right hand of God who spilled his blood and he is pleading that blood for you at God's right hand. That is a comforting thought. Right at this moment, there is a throne room where the man Christ Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He reminds Almighty God of the weakness of human flesh and the tremendous temptations provided men in this world because He suffered in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So many benefits we get from Jesus Christ. Why, when we pray, do we conclude in Jesus' name? Is that just some habit we've got into? We're pleading the name of a man that's sitting at the right hand of God who shed His blood, and He is God's well-beloved Son. How do we obtain the Spirit of God? 
Jesus Christ said, I will pray the Father. Listen to this, brethren. I will pray the Father, and he shall send you a comforter. Where do you think you get the Spirit of God from? It's Jesus Christ getting that Spirit from the Father and sending it to you. I will not leave you comfortless. I could go the next hour on the benefits of the intercession of Jesus Christ. We've covered them indirectly in the past, but every benefit that you realize is wrapped up in Jesus Christ who is now begging and guaranteeing those benefits for you at the right hand of God. Verse 25, nor yet, he's made this point before, we need not linger on it. Hebrews 9:25, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. That was the day of atonement, tenth day, seventh month, blood of bullocks and of goats. Priests could enter in, but he had to do it again next year and the following year. Jesus Christ didn't have to do that once for all. If you were to have gone to St. Mary's this morning or Prince of Peace on the east side Catholic Church, they're offering Jesus Christ about four times a day. This tells us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, but the priests of Rome are offering Jesus Christ several times a day. And Hebrews 10, obviously I've preached it before, puts to rest the fact that Jesus Christ once for all hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 26, if Jesus had to do the annual approach like the priests of Levi, then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin with a sacrifice of himself. The end of the world out there is there to simply distinguish it from the foundation of the world. I mean, with Jesus Christ being the dividing point of time, and the first part's the foundation of the world, what's the last part going to be called? In the end of the world. Hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself? Now, verses 27 and 28 must be connected. If you've got a pen, you might want to circle the word as. It's the second word in verse 27. And circle the word so in verse 28 and connect the two. Those are two adverbs that are often connected together to say in exactly the way specified or compared. As men die, so Christ died, is the comparison. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, he's continuing the same thought that he didn't have to offer himself often every year like other priests, but he only had to do it once. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so in the same way Christ was once. You might want to circle the two the two words once and connect them. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. If men only die once, how many times did Jesus Christ have to die? Because his one, de his one death completely saved and redeemed all those that would have to die. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now Paul's in the middle of a hefty argument here comparing the blood of Christ and the one sacrifice to the blood of animals and the frequent sacrifices of the Old Testament. But he concludes chapter 9 right here with a little statement, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. What were the Hebrews in danger of doing? Not looking to Christ, but looking back under the law and denying the fact that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of it all and the prophesied coming Messiah 
and King of kings. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The great hope of the believer is that that Jesus Christ who is now appearing in the presence of God for us is returning to take us unto himself. That is the great hope of those that look for him. If you don't look for him, there is no evidence. You have an interest in the everlasting covenant. Those that look for him show by the fact that they're looking that they are the beneficiaries of that covenant. May God bless the preaching of his word and may all men repent and submit to Jesus Christ as king and priest and coming ruler.